Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look at why doctors and public health officials are warning that trying to get Omicron because it seems inevitable or, quote, milder than other variants is still not a good idea. First, though, award-winning documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson joins us. Nelson sheds light on both familiar yet underexplored corners of the African-American experience. We'll talk to him about his latest film, Attica, which was recently shortlisted for an Oscar, and hear how he gets his subjects to open up and what draws him to stories about institutions and movements that are greater than any one individual. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The documentary film Attica, which Stanley Nelson directed and produced with Tracy A. Curry, has recently been shortlisted for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film is about the September 1971 uprising at Attica State Prison in New York and the shockingly bloody, brutal, and deadly retaking of the prison by state troopers and the National Guard, as ordered by then-Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Stanley Nelson joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Really glad to have you. And of course, last year was the 50th anniversary of the Attica Uprising and, and Massacre. What drew you to this story? As I understand, it's something you've always wanted to do. Yeah, I think a bunch of things uh, drew me to the story at this point. Um, you know, I was 20 years old when Attica happened in 71. So I, I knew about it. I heard about it. But I felt that I had never really heard the details, you know, so that mm-hmm. I, I it never was reported really clearly why uh, the inmates took over the prison. You know, exactly what was the problem? Uh, we knew the outcome, but we didn't know why there was that outcome. Um, and as I I, I thought about making the film probably for 30 years. Um, and a couple of years ago, I realized that the guys in the yard, you know, were all, you know, a lot of them were in their early 20s and that um, this was the last best chance to have for them to tell their story. Uh, I also thought it, it reflected so much on what is happening today uh, with our prison system. And it was really an important story. Um, but it also it could be a really thrilling story to tell. Yes. You know, one of the things that really stands out about it is the fact that there are no so-called third-party experts, like there are no historians or academics. It's really lengthy interviews with those who are incarcerated or who were incarcerated, 
um, family members of, of the guards as well who were injured, even killed. Why was that? What happened? Did you try to include a third-party expert? Yeah, at one point we were going to uh, interview historians, and um, we had we had lined up a bunch of historians to to film, um, and we filmed one historian, and we kind of cut him in uh, with the other interviews of the inmates and, and the uh, observers and and the the families, and it just didn't fit. You know, it, it was like <laughs> they were coming from another world. Um, and so um, we had lined up one of our advisors, uh, Heather Thompson, who wrote a book, Blood in the Water, um, and won a Pulitzer Prize. And you know, we were really excited about uh, filming her book, but we didn't. We we ended up not really needing her, and it, and it didn't fit. In, and it uh, came to me to call up Heather and tell her, you know, Pulitzer <laughs> <laughs> Prize winner, uh, that that you know we weren't going to film her. But she was great. She was really gracious and like you know, hey, I, I totally understand if you don't don't need me. Yeah, our, I think go ahead. I'm sorry. I was go just ahead. gonna say our producers know that experience well too, and you end up not necessarily using somebody, but it had this interesting effect of really having the audience do the work to draw its conclusions as it goes and also to follow the story as it plays out and and your perceptions really change along the way. Did you deliberately try to make it have this effect or is that what you mean when you say that these third party sort of academics that explain weren't really needed? Well, I mean, I also should say that that the film also doesn't doesn't have any narration, so it's really just just told yes. by people people who who were there. Um, but but we we realized that that it was kind of a roller coaster ride, and early on we we thought of um, the structure of you know day one, day two, day three, you know, as it goes through the five days, because every day was different, and and in in some days you know it changed from morning till night. You know, um, the prisoners were, were exuberant when they first took over. And, you know, they thought that that not only was the uh, rebellion going to change the conditions in Attica, but uh, would reverberate across the country and change prisons across the country. And we see that in the first couple of days. And then um, the reality sets in and um, it takes on a whole different tint uh, in the second half of the film. Right. I actually want to play a clip from Attica. It's when we hear people reflecting on that first night, being out of their cells and in the yard at night for the first time in years, some in, in decades. Let's hear it. And we was talking, singing songs. It was it was a festive night. I loved it. I loved it, man. I was out in, in, in the nighttime looking at the stars. I was drunk. I was happy. You know, I was I liked it, you know. I was having a good time. And it was good. I, I felt free. I, I, you know, I mean, prison was there, but, you know, I felt free. I didn't have to hear the doors lock, locking. And if, and if it was a good feeling at that, that first night. When it got dark, and everybody was talking about finding somewhere to sleep, but, you know, don't sleep alone and, you know, that type of thing. There's a lot of uh, psychopaths and sociopaths in those facilities. So, you know, you have to protect yourself from, from your peers, even. Well, I knew this was gonna last forever. I knew there would, there would be an end to this. 
But just because we was incarcerated, it didn't mean that we were less than human. It's from the documentary film Attica, directed and produced by Stanley Nelson and Tracy A. Curry. And we're talking with Stanley Nelson, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about his latest film, Attica, or or his body of work, or even about the craft of documentary filmmaking? You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. Nelson has also done Freedom Riders, Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, and the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. The interviews in this documentary are really stunning. And and I know Tracy Curry coordinated uh, a lot of those interviews, but you've also talked at length about how you get people to open up to you. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things that, that we try to do is, is be perfectly honest about, about what we're doing, you know, and what we're trying to do. And and um, uh, we try to give people the option, you know, if, if, if we explain what we do and and, and, and you want to be a part of it, we really want you to, you to tell your story and your, your story is really valuable, uh, told in your own words. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a long... <laughs> complicated process, uh, especially with this film, because uh, Tracy uh, did most of the interviews and, and you know, she's an African-American woman and, and she's a lot younger and she, you know, wasn't alive uh, when the rebellion took place. Um, but we convinced people, uh, you know, of what we were doing and um, the, 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 the prisoners are great. And I think one of the real coups in the, in the film is we have the families of the guards that were held hostage. And so that the town of Attica, you know, a, a, a little town 250 miles upstate from New York uh, becomes a real character. You know, this all white town, which really kind of survived on the prison industry. You know, that was the main occupation. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the Those people are invaluable in, in telling another central part of the story. And that's the story of, of the guards and their families um, at Attica. Yes, and just their reflections as well. It was really incredible to hear the family members. I understand there were interviews set up with the guards, some of former guards themselves, um, but that they ultimately ended up pulling out. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I I, I can tell you, but I kind of really, really don't exactly know. But but we had interviews set up with with, with the guards and and uh, who had been held hostage, and um, I think three or four of them, and then all of a sudden they kind of all pulled out uh, at once. And I think that you know one thing that they said is is you know we we looked up Stanley Nelson and we know what kind of film this would will be. Um, and, um, hmm. you know, there's a lot of still bitterness, you know, in the town, um, between the, the guard, former guards and, and the guards families, um, about what happened at, at Attic. What do you think they meant? And I know it's hard to know exactly, but did you get a sense of what they meant when they said, this is a Stanley Nelson film and we know what kind of a film this will be? I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that, that many of them, um, you know, still uh, feel a lot of animosity towards the prisoners. Um, and they feel that that the film uh, in many ways will be sympathetic to the prisoners, um, which, you know, in, in many ways it is, um, you know, but it's also very sympathetic to 
uh, the townspeople and, and, and the guards and, um, and the relatives of the guards. Because in the final analysis, you know, they were um, murdered um, just like the, the inmates when, when the prison was re retaken. So uh, over three dozen people were killed. And I think nine, nine or 10 of those were guards. And they were, they were all killed by, you know, what, what's called friendly fire. They were all killed by law enforcement uh, retaking the prison. The other thing, just before we're coming up on a break, but in hearing the clip that we just played, I was really struck by by the music. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to scoring your films. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that in in, in my documentaries, you know, that a lot of them are, are historical. You know, we, we look at at two levels of music. One is is kind of music from the times, and, and you know, we use we use a, a James Brown back from 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 those times, and, and that that's the persuasions that, that you hear singing a cappella. Um, and, and then we have movie music, you know, so we have mm. a composer who's composing, you know, um, dramatic music um, to go like right with what what uh, what we're saying in, in the individual moment in the film. And, and we, we have those two different levels of music. You know, one of the things about, you know, the, the scoring Attica and, and, and the composer was that we had to really just, just, you know, keep it down and keep it low and, and keep the music very subtle because what, what's happening is so dramatic. You know, it's yes. so, so amazing. And, the, you know, I, I have to say this, that, you know, that please people watch the film because this, the footage is just incredible. I mean, you cannot believe the footage. You know, I try to talk to people and say, you know, uh, to describe it. And I just had to, you got to see it to believe it. You know, um, one of the main things was that the prisoners asked the press to come in and, and, and asked the film cameras to come in because they thought if, if the whole thing was filmed, they would be uh, somewhat protected. Um, and so mm. cameras, cameras are filming the whole thing. Wow, yes, the footage is incredible. And we'll talk more with filmmaker Stanley Nelson and about Attica and more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with documentary filmmaker and MacArthur Fellow Stanley Nelson, whose latest film is Attica, which is now streaming for free on YouTube, um, if you'd like to check it out. Nelson is also the co-founder with his wife, Marsha A. Smith, of Firelight Media, a nonprofit organization that supports and develops nonfiction filmmakers of color. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have questions or comments. What would you like to tell Stanley Nelson or if you have questions about his latest film, Attica, or other films that he's done or about the craft of documentary filmmaking? Generally, the number is 866 733-6786, You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. I want to ask you a little bit about becoming a filmmaker, because I've heard you say that, you know, growing up in, in 1950s New York, 
that you really had no idea that that's something you wanted to be because it was not an option for you know anybody for African Americans and that you weren't aware of any black filmmakers growing up. How how did you get into this line of work? Um, you know, I was bouncing around college in the in the early seventies and um, uh, taking classes with no rhyme or reason. And I took a film class and, and I liked it. And I said, wow, you know, this is something really, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I just have to come in and watch a couple of films and, and you know, write a little essay on the films and and go out and film stuff. Wow. <laughs> and at, at the same time, you know, black exploitation films were taking off. This was a time, you know, where for the first time you saw at, at, at any kind of um, real level, you know, African-Americans in front of the camera or behind the camera. And um, the films, mainly the films, you know, were so weird and bad, you know, <laughs> films. And I was like, okay, well, well, I could do, I think I could do as good as they're doing, if not better. Um, so I switched my major to film and, and uh, got a degree in filming. Do you ever think about like what else you would have done or I think about what else you would do if you were not a filmmaker? No. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I just got really, really lucky and, and, and got into to, uh, film production and um, with no rhyme or reason, I kind of, you know, um, turned out to be good at it. You know, I, I can, I always say that I, I had no artistic talent I displayed no artistic talent you know, until then. I mean, I couldn't draw. I couldn't, you know, play the saxophone. I, you know, I couldn't paint. You know, I just, you know, I, I, so it, it was just lucky that, you know, I, I fell into filmmaking and we started making little films in the, in, in the class. And I, I really liked doing it. And I, you know, I was the guy that, that would, go, would volunteer to go out with anybody, you know, like, hey, you know, you're filming this weekend. Oh, you you know you're going out at six o'clock in the morning. Okay, yeah, great. Where do I go? You know, because 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 I just liked it, and um, it, it was just really it turned out to be luck that that uh, I think you know I turned out to in some ways be good at it, but I think it turned out to be good because I really like it. You know what I mean? And so it, it's, it was never about kind of you know, you know being shortlisted for the Academy Award. You know, that, that's a total shock. It was about telling the story of Attica. Yeah, well, I should congratulate you on that. That's that's a, a big thing. Let me go to Deborah in Berkeley, who would like to join the conversation. Deborah, hi. Hi, I just um, wanted to thank you for finally making this film on Attica. I was a 19-year-old student at the University of Buffalo at the time of the uh, rebellion and uh, was working uh, with the early Attica Defense Committee with young students and attorneys, including uh, Bill Kunstler. And at that time, uh, all the news had come out that everybody was killed by the inmates. And it took a lot of work just to get the true facts out that everybody was killed by the, um, by the guards. And, I, and I'm just so happy that uh, a film has finally been made. I'm just shocked that it's taken 50 years. So I just wanted to call to thank you. Deborah, thanks. Um, Stanley Nelson. No, thank, thank, thank you. I mean, I think that the the last half hour of the film is incredibly sh shocking, and and you know we cover all all that in the film. You know that that uh, 
uh, almost 40 people were killed at Attica and the first newscast and that you see, you see the national newscast in the film where they say that the, the throats were slit by, by the, by the uh, inmates uh, and, and the guards were killed by the inmates. It turns out that no guards were killed by the inmates during the, the retaking of, of Attica. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the phone calls between Nelson Rockefeller and, and Richard Nixon, which, you know, in all his craziness, Richard Nixon recorded. Uh, and, you know, you, you hear Nixon congratulate Rockefeller. And the first thing he says, you know, was it the blacks? You know, was, was, it, was it mostly the blacks? And then he says, you know, were any white people killed? <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's the president of the United States. It's just, yeah. it's just uh, incredible. The overt nature of the racism, and, and also you touch on in the film just how law and order became, or it almost solidified that as the order of the day with this story, um, and just how unfortunate that was because of the fact that negotiations had been going on. And Deborah brings up, you know, the committee, I think it was like the Observers Committee of Civilians and Lawmakers who tried to negotiate this peaceful resolution. And we actually have tape of, of one of the members. This is Clarence Jones talking about how it, it basically, Attica will stay with him. God willing, a few more months in January, I'll be 90 years old. I will never, ever, 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 ever forget Attica. Ever. It didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. Um, such a powerful point. And I don't know if you want to talk about um, about that being what, what really feels like in many ways an overarching message in your documentary. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's very clear from the documentary that it, that it didn't have to be that way. Um, you know, that, that Rockefeller <clears throat> Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York, who really controlled the prison system. Um, he wanted to be president, you know? I mean, he was one of the richest <laughs> men in the world. Uh, you know, he, you know he's, uh, he's Rockefeller. Um, you know, he's the governor of New York. He, you know, he wants to be president. And, and you know, Nixon had been elected on the whole law and order uh, ticket, and, and that was where the Republican Party was going. And, and so that he had to show that he was tough on crime and, and was a real advocate for law and order because he's st he still talked about it as kind of a liberal Republican. You know, there's a whole thing of Rockef Rockefeller Republicans, or used to be a thing, which, which is like kind of the liberal branch of, of the Republican Party. Uh, and, but he wanted to be president. He wanted to show that he was tough on crime. One of the most incredible things in the film is that, you know, he's on the phone with Richard Nixon, you know, not only after the rebellion, but but during the rebellion, as they're trying to get him to come up to Attica, you know, and, and just to come up and not not go into Attica, the prison, but just come up and show concern and 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 maybe that that can end it. And and Nixon is telling him, don't go, you know, and 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 those phone calls are recorded. And so and so that 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 they're in the, in the film. Um, the other thing that has to be really clear is that nothing happened that, you know, so there was, this was a five day takeover and nothing happened on the fourth or fifth day where it got any worse, you know, or any better. I mean, it was, they were still negotiating and the prisoners thought they were negotiating in good faith. And, and the, the, the commissioner of prisons in the state of New York had agreed to 28 of the 30 demands, you know, so there were, there were two demands 
um, that he hadn't agreed to in the first. And, and the biggest and um, most significant was amnesty. They wanted amnesty for anything that had happened during the rebellion. Because the, the prisoners thought that they, they would all be prosecuted as one and, and, <clears throat> and that they uh, could be prosecuted and, and, and added on to their prison terms um, for what already were really lengthy terms in some uh, cases. Well, John tweets, bravo to Stanley Nelson. In the late 1990s, you documented the rise and eventual decline of black newspapers in the groundbreaking film, The Black Press, Soldiers Without Swords. Where do you think black media and black storytelling is headed in the future? Um, I do not know. <laughs> you know, I'm certainly the new black newspapers, you know, that if some still exist, and some do are shells of, of what they were and, and for a number of reasons. But, you know, pr pretty much uh, newspapers in a way are shells uh, of what they were. But, but people are getting uh, their news and people are getting media and, 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 and in different ways. And who knows what different ways uh, will get, get, the, get media in the future. Um, but I, I think the, the heartening thing is we still have a need for what the black press represented which was um, telling events, telling the news um, in a way that, that was really um, significant and, and really um, was focused on the problems of African-Americans and, and, and also the joys and, 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 and triumphs of African-Americans. It's interesting too, even, I, I know you've talked about doing stories about broader systems, about movements, and certainly it very much is about prison reform and it is very relevant to today. But one of the things that also it felt like um, was a movement was in your documentary Attica, it, it felt like a movement for human dignity, for, for humanization, just generally. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things that, that, that the former prisoners and the negotiators uh, talk about constantly in, in the film, that, that um, you know, they wanted to be treated like human beings, you know, and, and, and the indignities were, were, were small and large. You know, one of the things that, that always, you know, uh, strikes me is that they were, the prisoners at Attica were given a one roll of toilet paper a month. You know, and if you ran out, you know, as one guy says, you know, you had to tear pages out of books and stuff. You know, I mean, they were they that was it. You know, you were given, you know, and but besides the the beatings and and and, and the other uh, horribleness uh, of, of the, the prison up there in Attica. Um, so again, they 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 were not treated as humans. Um, small things and 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 large things. We're talking with Stanley Nelson. We're talking about Attica, which is now available to stream for free on YouTube, courtesy of Showtime. And you can check it out there. And you, our listeners, are also with us here. And let me go to Wade in San Anselmo. Hi, Wade. Do you have a question? Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, I was wondering if Mr. Nelson um, was familiar with something that I uh, learned when I, I worked in San Quentin for a few weeks on a movie many, many years ago. And the guards you know, we had time to talk and the guards made reference to Attica uh, quite a bit. And they said that the reason why they were constantly moving prisoners around California uh, was to keep the uh, 
keep the balance or imbalance might be more accurate um, of the of the makeup uh, of the uh, the ethnic makeup, I guess, of the uh, prisoners so that they would continue to be at each other's throats, so to speak, so that they could never band together and have something such as Attica happen again. So I was asking Mm. them how they how how they expected the prisoners to or the people once they made it out onto the outside, how they were supposed to, you know, figure out society out of the prison. You know, after that, it seemed kind of like a impossible situation. That that sounds awful. Uh, if it's true, Stanley Nelson, had you heard anything about that? Sort of. uh, yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that, that we talk about a little bit in Attica, you know, is that um, before the rebellion, one of the things that was happening at the prison was that um, the, the white prisoners, black prisoners and Puerto Rican prisoners were kind of set against each other. You know, the white prisoners were, were given certain privileges and you know, everybody was in, was in their own silo um, dictated by by race. We have a, a great um, uh, prisoner in, in the film, Al Victory, a white white prisoner who talks about the fact that he was given certain privileges, you know, because he was white and, and uh, you know, more food and, and you know, uh, things like that. Um, and, and he talks about it and they were really kept at each other's throat by, by the prison. Um, but one of the things that really moved um, the, the, uh, the prisoners together um, was uh, George Jackson's death at San Quentin. And, and then that started, they went on a hunger strike and that actually led to the rebellion in, in, in Attica. And they're very clear, you know, that, that, you know, once they took over the prison, that they were all in the same boat and they, and they united, you know, and they elected, they elected representatives um, by cell block. Uh, they gave out food and water. Uh, and in many ways, um, they were they were united. We have a clip of, of uh, a bunch of white prisoners in the yard yelling unity, you know, and so it, it was very different uh, what what happened after the rebellion um, as to what happened before the rebellion. I've heard you and, and your wife, Marcia Smith, talk about how you choose stories to tell that need the gaps to be filled in. And this feels like very much an example of that. The two of you co-founded uh, Firelight media and it's an organization that that supports and develops documentary filmmakers of color wanted to ask you about it just feels so necessary <laughs> and i'm wondering if it feels that way to you yeah that's that's why that's why we we started this um you know uh the doc lab at, at firelight media and, and other programs at firelight media i think the doc lab is in its 12th year and why program. why is it so important to give the kind of support to projects and to develop and work with filmmakers of color yeah i mean i think that that that, that, that one of our core beliefs at, at firelight media is that people need to tell their own stories as much as possible you know and, and that they need to to, to break into the industry and, and tell their tell their own stories um, and that that's what we push one of the things that that happened for me is that um, when you know when, when I went into filmmaking um, there were a, a number of different programs that that uh, existed you know government programs programs by different state TV stations especially different PBS stations you know to get different people in into the 
into the media, but uh, so many of those things have folded, you know, as we've entered into this era that we're, that we're in now. So that we felt that, that you know, um, one of the things that so many people were doing, were, uh, especially uh, filmmakers of color, you know, um, were, were working with younger filmmakers. And we just wanted to try to, you know, give it a, a, a real home and a real framework. And that's why we started Firelight Media and, and why we started the, uh, the docu documentary lab, which was our flagship program and, and uh, has been hugely, hugely successful. Mm -hmm. um, two of our alumni are also on the shortlist one for uh, Jessica Kingdom uh, with Ascension and uh, Christine Turner with a short uh, lynching postcards. Oh, wow. Um, that's incredible. Is there a next project for you, something that you're working on right now that you want to share? Yeah, I actually, I'm, I'm just putting the finishing touches on on, on two films. One on Frederick Douglass, uh, on the first uh, half of Frederick Doug Douglass's life. It's called Becoming Frederick Douglass. And another on Harriet Tubman. Uh, and those are both for uh, PBS and will hopefully be on the national schedule um, in the fall. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Stanley Nelson. It, it, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson, whose latest film is Attica, and you probably know him from previous works, including Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, and The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. And we were just talking about the organization he co-founded called Firelight Media that supports and develops documentary filmmakers of color. Thanks to our listeners for sharing their questions and comments. Thanks to Susie Britton for producing this segment. We have another one coming up. This time we'll be talking about Omicron and why, even if it seems like it will ultimately become endemic and a lot of people are getting it, it's still worth trying to avoid it. Stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.